0: And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast,
1: Mystery Mystery of Everything.
0: Everything,
3: available everywhere you get your podcasts.
4: What you're about to hear is a special crossover episode of Monster Talk with the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. Host Sarah, repeat Monster Talk guest Kenny Fader, and Jeb Card are regulars on that show. In this special, they join me, Blake Smith, and my regular co-host, Karen Stolzno. This is an unusual episode for me in that I really wanted to get it out for Halloween because this has been an amazing month for Monster Talk and we've had more than 100,000 downloads for the show during this month of October. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends and for giving us ratings on iTunes. Those two activities have a huge impact on you people being able to find the show. And thanks again to the fine folks at Archaeological Fantasies for doing this crossover with us. I hope you enjoy it. I'm running it fully as Sarah edited it, including her regular commercials for the Archaeological Podcast Network. Now, some of you may be wondering why we're even covering fairies. Well, you know those cute little humanoids with the gossamer wings and the enigmatic smiles that flit around in cartoons? Yeah, those are not fairies. I mean, not really. As you'll hear in this episode, historically, fairies are creatures to be feared and respected. They can make your cow dry up or your crops fail. And in the time before grocery stores, these were not inconveniences. They were life-threatening tragedies. And even more disturbing, fairies could take away your family or loved ones and replace them with something or someone else. People died from being mistaken for fairy replacements. Like a lot of the creatures we talk about on Monster Talk, there's a pop culture side that's fun, but there's a dark, dark side too. But you'll hear more about that in what follows.
0: Monster
5: Talk
0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
5: The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com.
6: Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals.
3: Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 59, the Monster Talk Crossover Edition. Today, the Archaeological Fantasies and the Monster Talk podcast join forces to debunk one of the most disnified creatures out there: fairies. We talk about what fairies are, where they possibly came from, how the idea of fairies has changed throughout the years, and if there is any archaeological evidence for fairies to exist.
4: Get ready to think critically. I'm not sure. I know we've mentioned you before, and we've had Ken on before,
7: um, and I definitely endorse your podcast. I've listened to all of it and really enjoy it. Oh, thanks. But maybe we should get introductions from everybody. we we'll to start with Sarah.
3: My name's Sarah. I'm an archaeologist. I've been I've worked in the field and I've worked in the lab. Um, I've got
2: about 15 years under my belt now. So if you do your math, you can figure out how old I am. We've been doing well. I've been doing the Archie fantasies pod, uh, the Archie fantasies blog now for. I want to say going on seven years, and the podcast I think is turning two at the end of this year.
4: So you're going to beat us in numbers
7: really quickly.
3: (laughs) Well, we just recently went to a weekly format, so we're
7: kind of cheating,
3: I
2: guess.
7: Ambitious, I like it. (laughs)
3: Yeah, we
2: we went from a bi-monthly format, so we I guess bi-weekly format. So we're doing every two weeks, and then our producer asked if we were willing to try to do the weekly. And uh, that's when we brought Jeb on as our second co-host. So Jeb and Ken are, they alternate weeks, which is why if you have started listening to the podcasts around, I want to say episode 40-ish, you'll notice that the co-host on the show changes each episode. That's neat. Yeah. yeah, it's been really cool, actually. I've enjoyed it a lot because if you get two different voices out there, um, and Jeb and Ken, though they're both very knowledgeable, they're both really knowledgeable kind of in different areas. And so it's really neat having two people who can bring so much different stuff to the podcast. And then we do crazy things like the movie episode where we just yeah. all three get together and talk about there's, it.
5: There's been a few of those recently.
2: Yeah, I enjoy yeah. having all three of them. I enjoy having all three of us on. It is yeah. kind of fun.
5: Uh, this this is, kind
8: of, is, a cool, is a cool synergy, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
5: No. So, Jeb, who are you? Uh, yeah, hi. I'm, uh, I'm also an archaeologist, and I've been teaching at uh, Miami University for the last six years as a visitor and other titles and whatnot. And I work in—I've I've done archaeology in North America in, in a number of places, but my, my research is primarily in Mesoamerica, especially in El Salvador, uh, on both colonial stuff and on, uh, to some degree, classic Maya stuff stuff. And I also write about these things. I uh, have been getting a few things out there on why archaeology can at times be so really weird. Jeff wrote a book. Yes, he did. Well, yeah. And that's that's uh, that's a that's something I'm... Uh, the, the press is actually going to editorial board tomorrow to make some finalizations. So by the time this is out, either I'll be... I, I'm pretty happy about some reviews i got recently so i'm happy about that so anyway um and one of our anyway i'm not gonna say any further No worries. so that's what who's
0: ken who's ken, ken? Who, who's ken who is this ken who's, who's ken, ken? ken? Who's who's ken
8: the, you know listen so i what the, what the hell is my title sarah am i permanent guest
2: no permanent guest permanent, permanent guest, well, guest would go to the, jeb <laughs>
8: Oh, I, whatever the hell I am, so I I do all the you know people who listen to this podcast these podcasts know who the hell I am. So I've done a uh, I'm this co-host or whatever of archaeological fantasies, and I've been on a bunch of uh, monster talk episodes. So I swing both ways nice. <laughs> when it comes to these podcasts, and I'll, yeah, I'll just leave it. I'm an
6: archaeologist. Yes
8: no, well, you you know, would, so you would, you would
4: you wouldn't describe yourself.
7: Right. <laughs> you wouldn't describe yourself as buy, but you would describe yourself as <laughs> buy my book. Right? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. This is why I don't do that many of the Monster Talk
8: ones because Blake is just He's just incorrigible. I just and want to point um, out
2: that Ken's introduction for himself is, I am, this, I am such a big deal, you should already know who I am. That that was Ken's introduction.
7: Archie Fantasy's listeners may not know myself or Karen, so Karen, would you like to introduce yourself?
0: Okay, I'm a host of Monster Talk. Awesome. <laughs> um. I'm Karen Stolzner, Dr. Karen Stolzner. I'm a linguist and uh, host of Monster Talk and an author of a number of books uh, God Bless America, Language, Myths, and a novel I just released called Hits and Misses.
7: Oh, good one. And she's the qualified person on the show. And I'm, I'm Blake Smith. There,
0: there's no qualification to do <laughs> I'm a
7: monstrologist. monsterologist.
0: <laughs> <The> monster-ologist.
7: <laughs> Do you I have do. a PhD in monsterology. I do from uh, Thunderwood College. Yeah, so. there's a really good <laughs> series of books
2: called The Monsterologist. So you should read those. I,
7: I it would it. I actually just uh, picked up one on the Monster Hunters series, which is, I think, similarly themed. So anyway, I'm the host and producer of, of Monk Talk, and uh, like Karen, I've, I've just been very interested with monsters and skepticism for a long time, so this is a really great synergy for us uh, to talk about this, especially because the topic for tonight uh, is fairies and archaeology, and so um, I think uh, based on material that Jeb shared with us, uh, this should be a fun conversation. Absolutely. Where do we start?
2: Yeah, there's a lot to cover.
7: There is. Are we we've got a page and a half of notes, I think, and and you I think
0: know, sense though. So
7: well, you know, that's true. Ignore them. silly <laughs> bullets. <laughs> I, I guess one thing is I, I'd like to just mention. Um, and Jeb may even want to speak to this, is for a lot of people, uh, fairies are things like Tinkerbell and Disney movies. And, you know, they're happy, friendly, fun, winged creatures, humanoid, uh, magical, friendly powers. Uh, and that's just not, historically, uh, how the folklore fairy go. They, they have a very dark history, and they fit very nicely in the Park world. And nice. they have some really cool overarching, i part pardon the accidental funs, qualities with uh, with archaeology. So uh, let's
5: let's start there. Well, I the best way I would I mean this is sort of not burying the lead but kind of getting right to the lead. if you want to think about fairies before say Disney and fairies before say the children's stories of the 19th century, think of how we think of aliens today like in the 20th and 21st century. That's pretty close. Where there are the bright, shining people like the, uh, like, you know, we have today, what are they, the Nordics and the, and the talls or the Highs, whatever they're called by alien contactees. And then creepy ass people that terrify you at night and have all kinds of mystical powers and strange metal objects that defy the laws of reality. And they hide and they're often tied to archaeological sites, you know, hence ancient aliens that's actually a lot closer to how things like uh every every sort of name fairies and dwarves and elves and sheehy and all these and i'm probably you know, i can i can hear i can hear historians uh, uh of medieval europe and all that freaking out that i'm lumping together this and that but i, I think as we're going to see it's it's not actually that inappropriate
8: and when you and when you look at, at at north America, native north america uh, the stories of the little people that sound very often share many of these same kind of general characteristics. They are not good guys. They are little. They live in the woods. Um, they're seen only at a distance and you have to be, don't make eye contact with them because you'll get in trouble and you have to leave them things or they'll be mad at you. And so they are, they're powerful and dangerous. Not necessarily evil, but they're something to be, something that, that you have to deal with if you live in, especially in the eastern woodlands of the United States. So th- those little people are the equivalent of um, fairies.
5: Yeah, and if you move into into Central America, I mean, in, in Yucatan, you have the Alushol, the singular Alush. That are, are very similar, and they are sometimes glossed with duendes, which is the Spanish equivalent. And I, mean, I have colleagues uh, working at sites in Yucatan in the 2000s talking about house mounds. And this is an area that's extremely familiar with archaeology. Uh, house mounds, like, oh no, that that one's inhabited by by Aluxo, and they live in these little clay figurines at, which come alive at night and don't That'd mess be with that. Confused them. With, with the Shai-Alu, the sandworms of Dune. No, I those are those are those are much much bigger. <laughs> <laughs> So... Go ahead. Sorry, Karen.
0: Oh, I was going to move on. So if you had some follow up, go ahead. No, I was
7: just going to say that from a skeptical perspective, I don't think lumping them together would be the right way to characterize that. I would think that uh, something we look at a lot on Monster Talk is that monsters often serve as a way to explain unexplained things. So there, it could be an attribution error. Um, people always want to attribute agency when they don't understand the cause of things, and and that agency being done by invisible agents could be that could be. Be, uh, aliens. They could be. They could be fairies. They could be other kinds of creatures. But throughout the world, the idea that there are these hidden creatures who are just outside of our, uh, our senses and, and just sort of affect
5: us. It seems to be a common thing everywhere. Well, and I, I think this does tie into archaeology. One of the things I have been working on in, in, in various things is, is something I like to call extra humans or, or people who are not people. So if you go back to, uh, if you uh, so for example, if you go to the British Museum today, in their Enlightenment Room, which looks at the history of museums, the history of collecting and so on, uh, there will be John Dee's mirror that he got from the Aztecs and, and all these things. And next to that will be a chipped stone tool, a chipstone arrowhead or projectile point, I'm not going to say it's on an arrow, but it's about the size it would, be, it would work nice on an arrow in the Mesolithic or the Neolithic, but it had been mounted in silver at one point uh, because it was elf shot. If you go sure. into sort of medieval lore you have basically the idea that rather than these stone tools being made by ancient humans they're being made by uh, elves today or then, uh, That that's how you get sick, you get shot by them. And in fact, there, there, are, there are witch trial documents from the 17th century in Scotland that talk about people going into the hills and get getting elfy headies, elf heads, elf stones, these basically ancient projectile points, grinding them up for, for, for medicines to, to save people. That have, and this is very like, you know, the, you have to have elf magic to survive like a Morgul blade in Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. And what I think is going on here, I don't think this explains all of these, but I think it's very much something we see, is when people run into these things, like, well, somebody made this. I don't know who made this. Did your ancestors make No. Did somebody in a written book? No. Well, then somebody else made this. And, and I think we see a lot of that even in a lot of things we call pseudoscience today. And in uh, Game, of, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Do, is that is that a thing in there? Yeah, they uh, they have the children of the
7: forest, uh, right. which are basically fairies or elves, mm-hmm. and they use obsidian to fight the uh, White Walkers. <laughs> yeah, As so. you do,
6: yeah. yeah. So do. it's basically
7: chip chip obsidian tools are one of the few things that can kill these magical beings. So and to follow
8: up on what Jeb just was talking about, the Ashley and hand axes that are even older than the tools he's talking about; those were called fairy stones. Mm-hmm. And, and also Thunderstones, but the, again, they were being attributed to, we don't know who, somebody made these, we didn't make them, there's nothing in the Bible that talks about a time when people were making nothing but stone tools, so there's got to be some other agency, some other uh source for these, and it must be fairies.
2: Well, it's yeah. interesting that you bring that up, because when I was doing some research on um the Native American little people, especially out in Southwest area, it's... Interesting because a few of them, not all of them, but a few of them are attributed with giving the knowledge of stone tools to their respective tribes. So it's it's interesting that the fae or the little people are so directly connected in some cases to the manufacture of stone tools.
5: Yeah. Well, I, I think our modern, I mean, I mean, as I said, I think our modern equivalent of this is aliens. And look at the most popular form of aliens today, ancient aliens. And it's pretty much the same thing. Well, did did my people make this? Well, those people couldn't make it because they're inferior. And that gets back to our, our right. the fact that racism is such a big part of pseudo-archaeology. All aliens must have done it.
7: Well, yeah,
2: especially, our, when you throw in, especially when you throw in Von Daniken's reinterpretation of the book of Genesis and the whole fall of the angels and the angels were the ones that gave the knowledge and danikin's like no no those were actually aliens so now we have aliens gifting the knowledge and
5: and one of the major explanations for what fairies are is in fact the fallen angels thrown out of heaven and they land and you know they they became fairies or mermaids or whatever depending on where they landed
2: right and like you said earlier that actually that whole them becoming either angels or demons actually happened after christianity started rolling through the area
5: Right. And, and you see the same thing. I mean, the, I'm not saying that there was not the idea of the Alushob before colonialism in, Meso- in Mesoamerica or, or similar things, but that's, I think there's some syncretism going on there where you've got the European traditions and local traditions and the fact that older things, older traditions were being literally demonized. And, and we see this in, in the Middle East. As Islam begins to spread, just as Christianity spread in Europe, as Islam spreads across the Middle East, uh, everything starts to be attributed to, or many things start to be attributed to jinn. And the yeah, jinn become I mean, evil.
8: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, listen, we could start, we, we, we right now could start a brand new internet meme where we could have a picture of Jeb with Jeb saying, I'm not saying it was fairies, <laughs> but it was fairies.
2: <laughs> Jeb doesn't have, uh, Jeb doesn't have wild enough hair.
5: No, I do not. I do not. Although, <laughs>
2: in, grow
5: <laughs> although, earlier this earlier this week, I did a video for an online course where I dressed up as a stereotypical caveman, and I kind of did have hair like nice. that. Well, you missed your opportunity, Jeff. <laughs> So, yeah. well, speaking
7: of uh, uh, Jen, I, I, that's something that I find interesting: is this attribution of uh, these ancient creations to some magical power or aliens? It seems to be the same kind of. Uh, thinking where you you yeah. attribute it to something supernatural when you don't understand how it was done, and I was wondering is that idea that Jen, I was specifically thinking about the Ring of Solomon. Jed, did you happen to look into how old the story of Solomon's ring is? Is it, is it actually an ancient story, or is it like six hundreds, eight hundreds? I don't ad-
5: know how I, that 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 kind of falls a little outside my purview. I I, I have to say we had uh, we had Jason Colavito on the show recently and he dives deep into that kind of like classical stuff and medieval stuff and as, not unlike my i mean i do some of that but not unlike my 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 intro course lost cities and ancient civilizations i often tell the kids you know once we get into that stuff i kind of kick out if you can find that over in the history department i i sort of i sort of kick out but it's it i think it is fairly old i mean uh, you you do have a lot of these things have a lot deeper roots than you might suspect
2: well, the trick with Solomon's ring, though, here's the interesting tidbit there. And this happens to be one of those weird things that I happen to just know. Mm-hmm. There's no actual mention of a ring of Solomon. It was the seal of Solomon and everyone and everyone right. just assumes that it is a ring. But it doesn't actually become a ring until uh, I believe there's a short story. I think there was a short story written. I think it was uh, Roger Zelaney that wrote it first. I don't know. I don't know. My timeline might be off. But the concept of the the seal of Solomon being a physical ring is a modern, more modern thing where the seal of Solomon's never actually ever described. Like it could have been a plaque. It could have been a stamp. It could be a ring, but it's never actually given a description in any of the te- in the, the older texts, the religious texts. That's right. a very, and,
5: correction. Thanks. And, and, and uh, given yeah. that people were obsessing about it for a very long time and making up all kinds of crap about it, yeah, you're not going to get any closer to that short of finding some much older text.
2: Yeah, I think it's one of those things kind of like the Holy Grail where it just kind of, there's a mention of it at some point and then suddenly yeah. it just like becomes its own thing.
5: Yeah, right. no, exactly. Philosopher's Stone. Right, Anselor, exactly. Yeah.
8: So i got I a question for Jeff. Yes. So uh, the, the Celtic stories of the fairies, to, yes. Today, if you walk into some small community in Scotland or Wales or Ireland, and you ask about fairies, will you get people who will tell you, "Oh, yeah, they're real. We encountered them." They're well. They're off. Is that is that still an ongoing thing,
5: or do they wink and nod and say? Every well, every couple of years, you'll have news reports. You'll have this. You'll have people talk about this, and that almost. I mean, it's one of those things where I'm not sure you can answer that. I mean, I guarantee that you will find people that actually absolutely believe in this. But mm-hmm. then there's the sort of, I forget who it was. It was an author a few years ago. He was talking about this sort of effect where there was the one guy who would show up in every Jersey Devil <laughs> documentary yes. and every Jersey Devil news report, and he, like, would just tell the story. And <laughs> da, da, da. And, and and the author had talked to him was like, yeah, I don't believe most of this, or do I? You know, uh-huh. I, 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 think that falls into it. So, one of the ones I, 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 start my, my chapter on this in, in, in the volume with, in 2011, the, the richest guy in Ireland, Sean Quinn, he loses all of his money. He has some other weird things going on with him. And there were people that were happy to be quoted in the Belfast Telegraph saying, well, yeah, the fa- it was because he moved a, uh, a Neolithic, uh, all fairy right. around, And uh-huh. it was the fairies that did it. Now, am I going to hook him up to like a lie detector? But then you find people that absolutely do talk about being visited by fairies, just as you've got people who talk about being Bigfoot habituators. Uh, I think there's a
7: spectrum. Well, let me me just say that in my life, I anecdotally know someone who not only believed in fairies, but believed that they were a fairy. And that's not a
5: mess. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. I yeah. have friends
2: that believe that they are of fairy descent. So
5: yes, the other the kin, the other kin business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, like vampires,
0: hey? People believe they're vampires. It's
8: it's an interesting what Jeb said about you know you, they they talk that the same people show up and in all of these documentaries. And they're the ones who are the true believers. The same is true for Loch Ness. There was a a period of time in the 1980s when there were a number of Loch Ness documentaries. And if you watch them, you kept seeing the same people over and over and over again who are absolutely certain, yes, I've seen the monster. And the other people, you get, get this impression that it's like, well, come on, folks, this is about tourism. We want people to come here. So, oh, yeah, we're pretty sure it's real. But there were a small, small cadre of people who, I suppose, actually were true believers in these things.
5: Yeah. Or, or it's just that it's fun. I mean, why? Yeah, would, you know, sure. It's kind of well. screw with, you know, the people that parachute in, they do like a 48-hour, like, stay in the local B&B, and then they get out, or the Best Western, and, you know, tell them some, tell them some line. Or, or tell them something you actually believe, because, hey, this is your time to do it. So, here's a
2: question for Blake and Karen, then, because, you know, we're supposed to be cross-examining each other. That's right.
5: You guys come at this
2: from a skeptical point of view, which, obviously, we do as well. But, you know, we try to look at everything through an archaeological lens and try to look at it, which gives us, you know, history and that kind of stuff. So, how
0: are you guys – how do you guys tackle something like fairies? Well, I think we'd normally look at cases, so particular stories, famous incidents and claims, uh, and then to to look into – uh, how legitimate they are, and to try and do some historical research, I think, to begin with. Uh, but I, I think rather than just saying, "Oh, fairies don't exist" or "fairies do exist," to to look at the individual cases.
7: I, I would concur. That that seems to be um, one of the biggest things that happens it, in in our kind of work is that we want to look at uh, specifically what are the phenomena that are being reported. Uh, you know, what what evidence is there to support it. I, one of the interesting things that, uh, is in, that Jeb covers a little bit is the, the, the mysterious death of uh, Neta Cornario. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's one of the kind of cases where there's lots and lots of people, and I, th- I guess maybe we should let Jeb kind of give an overview of that, but lots and lots of people who would like to make that into a supernatural case. And I'm not really sure that the evidence really supports that uh, approach, but it certainly is fascinating, and it certainly is some, you know, we, we both, I think, really love this lore And, uh, you know, we just do tend to spend more time trying to figure out if there's any veracity to it.
5: Would you like to get more involved with archaeology? Are you looking for volunteer or internship opportunities? Are you already working on community or personal archiving projects and could use some helpful hints? Check out the Ideas Portal, sponsored by Codify. Visit ideas.codify.com, a free and open community tool, and share your ideas, knowledge, and advice on select topics that will lead to vibrant opportunities and initiatives for all aspects of archaeology, from fieldwork to public service. All ideas are welcome. So visit ideas.codify.com today and make your voice heard. That's ideas.codify.com. Yeah, can you tell us the story here? Yeah, so I mean this is this is in uh, the 1920s. You got you got Neta Mary uh, Emily Neta Fornario. She was a member so one of the things that I let's uh, Let's wind this back a little. Let's let's, yeah, let's yeah. actually build to that story rather than start. Well, let me let me say what is found. Let's let's look at this actually like an archaeologist. Look at the surface collection. And on the surface collection on the island of Ionia in Scotland in the 1920s, you have a, a young woman who has gone up there and she is found dead on a mound. The, the Shethian Moor, the great fairy uh, mound, or the great fairy hill, and she's wearing a robe, and she's wearing silver jewelry, which was supposedly tarnished, and she has a knife nearby her, and this is chalked up to elementals and to fairies and other sorts of forces. But how we get to her... I think is actually, and, and sort of talking about approaches is, is a fascinating thing. Cause she's part of this much bigger kind of occult underground that's based in, in London. Uh, she had been in various magical societies before this. And we titled this episode, Archaeology. And, and you might be go, Oh, is, did you dig one up? You know, did you, did you, yeah. did, did Haimeh Masson give you one? Funny no, story. that is not what we did. Um, because here's something that I suspect the audience is probably not terribly aware of. In the late 19th century, there was very serious debate in the sort of early archaeological community of whether fairies were friggin' real. Like, actual debate, as in, like, people would gather in professional and quasi-professional conference and discuss this idea. And what this kind of ties into, if, by the way... not everything sort of some core parts what i'm talking about here if you want to learn more about this in addition some other stuff we'll talk about look up carol silver's book 1999 strange and secret peoples fairies and victorian consciousness because at the beginning of the show we were like oh tinkerbell and fairies and all that's because of the victorians they really domesticated this idea they've been around they became obsessed with them in the 19th century in no small part because they had been tied to archaeology, as we've been talking about before. So as the sort of the shocks of modernity kind of ripple across Victorian consciousness of evolution, of deep time, of our relatively small place in sort of space and time on on, on this planet, you had a number of what are called antiquarians, kind of like proto-archaeologists and folklorists, and they're often the same people, and early archaeologists. They actually went to that ancient lore that came from the edges of history, both physically and spatially, and they tried to plug it into archaeology. So you had ideas like, oh, that fairies were a memory of an ancient race, a a, a Turanian race of pygmies, of dark-skinned pygmies, of these and that. A lot of colonial tropes got kind of replayed, and that they had been vanquished by iron-using people, which if you go back to old fairy lore, there's a the whole idea that they are repelled by cold iron.
2: Where does that right. come from?
5: I, well, I think it makes. I, I don't know where the original comes from. I know it's older, but I think that reinforces it. This this sort of idea.
7: Yeah, the idea that the people with the iron technology wiped out the people with the stone technology. Right.
2: Right. I, I was wondering if that's it, what it, it was,
7: but I think it's older it, than that, though. I think that, it's, I think they adapted that, it to that, that to that. That's also, I think, to some at least, in my reading, why they the horseshoe is considered to be good luck. Right. Gotcha. Uh, right. Yeah. It's
5: iron. Yeah, it's, it's iron. iron.
7: It's it's iron. Wore it off the, the, the evil of the fairies. Who I should point out. We shouldn't be calling them fairies. We should be calling them the good people or yeah. our good neighbors. So,
2: <laughs> Well, that depends because if you're, depending on what group you're in, because the, the Norse tradition called them flower, which it just basically translates to land elves. And, yeah,
0: exactly.
2: you know, they could be good or they could be bad. But that's like a common trope with the fairies is that they could they could be good or they could be bad depending on where they are and if you treated them right.
5: Just, and and the jinn are the same way. The jinn, <laughs> yeah, can exactly, be very good or very bad. They're not. They're 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 just another kind of people. They're like and they're like true chaotic
0: characters. characters. <laughs> so they are always meant to be people or to be humans
5: or well, so not necessarily people, but like they are not gods and they mm-hmm. are not. They're that's it. That's why I think the fact that they're so commonly tied to archaeology is fascinating because they're not all powerful. Mm-hmm. You know, they may have more things that we have, but then they have other abilities. You know, like think of all the stories of of like selkies being trapped because you take away their seal skin and they can't turn back into a seal and 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 flit away. And they they fall into that kind of lore. They they're limited in their power. and And the jinn, for example, are very clearly talked about as sort of like a a a other an, another sort of creation, another kind of, of people. And the fairies are often talked about in that way to some degree as well. And and they're they're not really dramatically more than us. They're just sort of different in in many ways.
2: Well, yeah. And when you look at the Native American ones, they're almost, I mean, the little people, they're usually described as human looking, but they're not described in the same way that like incarnate gods are described.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And and, I... And that's why I like this sort of people who are not people or, yeah, or I, extra humans.
7: And, and <laughs> it's that lore that they got wiped out by other people's technology. That, that makes it into a lot of fiction, too. Robert E. Howard, I think it's Brand McMoran. Yeah. Well, a lot of the stories are him uh, fighting
5: these Picts,
7: uh, which are basically little people who live right. in the underground, right?
5: Well, so, so Robert E. Howard and and Lovecraft. And Arthur Machen, all of these major figures in kind of early fantasy and early weird fiction and early horror, what they're all pulling off of is so basically it took folks a while to deal with the implications of, of evolution. It kind of threw them for a loop. And we were talking about this recently on, on Archie Fantasies with Piltdown. That, you know, mm-hmm. as Ken pointed out, one of the reasons why Piltdown was so was so easily taken was it had a big brain and that made us feel at least a little better but the thing that separated us wasn't just that we can walk upright (laughs) and so the same thing's kind of happening here that well, maybe not all of our lore is bullshit and, and maybe some things of our kind of figurative history are not completely thrown out that maybe they're relics they're what we call euhemerisms of past events that have come down to us as gods and monsters and things of all kinds So you began to have a number of antiquarians and archaeologists who seriously looked at folklore and tried to map fairy lore like you would, say, take, you know, ancient stories of anomalies and map it onto the idea of ancient aliens today. It's it's very similar. It's almost identical in many ways. The guy that did the most of this was a folklorist by the name of David MacRitchie. And both of his books are – you can find them on archive.org or Google Books or you can find them all online where he's just going through and he's finding – the idea that fairies are, you know, fa- fairy lore here can be tied to Neolithic tombs. And fairy lore here can be tied to chamber tombs and to stone tools. Now, he doesn't believe that they are supernatural. But other people in his community, or in the, like, the sort of community of archaeologists and folklorists did, like uh, Evans Wentz, uh, who later becomes a major person who brings Buddhism into the West, but they're all, this may sound really surprising, but these folks were like, oh, there's an ancient race in Europe, or maybe it's tied in angles This is all, the lines between academia and professionals and non-professionals, and then people in what we might call more outre communities, like theosophy, like the, the Order of the Golden Dawn, like the, the occult underground of London. One of the things I've been writing about a lot is that those walls were a lot less um, high and solid. They're yeah, you really They're about, very right? porous, yeah. <laughs> so that brings <laughs> it's back to Netta, right? Yeah, that, exactly. Right. So, you know, the people that she's hanging out with, like Dion Fortune, who basically myth-makes. She's a major occult uh, writer on this stuff, who myth-makes a lot of this stuff after her death and says that she was tormented by elementals. That gets into, like, weird internal politics of the or- the Order of the Golden Dawn and its subsequent, like, sort of splinter groups and successors. Uh, and basically. It's sort of on the outskirts of all of that world. So the idea that fairies and archaeological sites, she dies on an archaeological site that's associated with fairies, that actually kind of thematically is part of this whole phenomenon.
7: I love the fact that she she apparently told people that she sometimes goes into trances and if if she does... for days, correct. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just don't don't call a doctor to this; she'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs>
5: yeah, it's this young woman from 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 London, and she she had gone up there supposedly to heal somebody. She was considered a healer in the occult in the occult world of like nineteen twenties London, and she goes up there for about a month, and she's at like an inn or you know like a, like a what we call a B and B today, and. She, she tells that to the, to the owner of it at one point. It's like, Oh, I go into trances. So if you see me like looking dead on the bed, just, just don't, don't, whatever. It's cool. It's cool. Just stick a mirror know, under just, my nose. Exactly. And this ties in the whole like idea of astral projection and, and, and trancing and all of that. But apparently one night she goes out and eventually is found. And this is like in November in Scotland, you know, oh. a place where when I visited last, what was it, May or June, there was snow on the mountaintops. So, uh, yeah, she doesn't freeze to death, but she died. I mean, she died of exposure almost certainly, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. so she's literally wearing like a robe and carrying a knife.
0: So you said she was on a fairy mound. Oh, you've you mentioned well, those a few times. What what exactly
5: are those well, fairy mounds much, fairy forts? It is pretty much like anywhere in, so almost every archaeological site, especially anything that's visible in certain parts of, of Europe is going to have either stories of wizards or people that turn into stone, but a lot of them have fairies, and that one specifically was, in fact, called, and I, I don't speak Gaelic, but the the sheathian or the Scythian Moor, quite literally the Great Fairy Hill, but it is is almost impossible. Uh, we're going to have uh, a speaker at the Society for American Archaeology meetings in our session, presumably it gets through approval, which I think it will, who writes about fairy rats, about like basically ancient Stone sites that are later seen as the sites of fairies. I mean, basically, it's almost finding an archaeological site that's not tied to that.
2: But the hill that she it, was on was it a burial mound?
5: Uh, there were standing stones there. Okay, uh, it's been it's been since there were not by the time when she was there, but there would have been uh, about a hundred years earlier.
8: Okay, in in um in Cornwall and in the Lakes District, there are archaeological sites. Long Meg and her sisters and the Merry Maidens. Which are they're standing stones or standing stone circles, and in both cases, the individual stones are 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 said to have been actual witches who were turned to stone by somebody who's pissed off at them because they're dancing naked under the moonlight. So again, there's again this this connection made between, in this case, megalithic sites, and in this case, fairies not witches, not fairies, but I think it's the same kind of thing.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. And 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 Ken, you've been up you've said you've been up to the Orkneys, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and I mean, you you were telling me how amazing it is and how there's just like this incredible resonance with what we see as like fantasy stuff today. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah, and and all of those all of those kind of have these same kind of stories. I mean, basically, and this shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, take a look at you guys have talked about ghost hunting in the past. You've had that on Every old house, every, God forbid, every old hospital, every old abandoned anything. Insane asylum, come on. Those are the best. Those
0: Uh, places uh, are stereotypically haunted.
8: Right. Oh, yes.
5: And even though they may have no, like, particularly good reason from a historical perspective, uh, does this look old? Does this look like there are, you know, things to happen here that I don't entirely understand? Well... The same. Now that, you guys were asking how old the sort of the Solomon's seal thing is. That idea is actually quite old. The Solomon's uh, seal, Se- yeah. Well, but, but the idea that these things are haunted. I just was oh, using as cute. a as comparison. So sorry, sorry. Like Sarah, you, Sam- yeah. Sarah Semple and others, they've talked about finding archaeologically, like archaeologically finding Anglo-Saxon burials in ancient Neolithic mounds. Uh, Anglo-Saxons say about uh, 1400 years ago, finding 1400 years ago, people burying folks in mounds that are like 5,000 years old, 4,000 years old. And this being from what historic records we have, probably criminals. People you don't like because, well, that place is infested with fairies and demons. And if you really hate this person, you'll bury
8: them. This, all
5: this, this leads me to a question though. So we're
8: looking, say, so looking, you guys have looked a lot, of course, at, at Bigfoot, Sasquatch. And there seems to be right, I mean, right now, there's this tradition of looking for physical evidence of Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And most of the evidence is are footprints. Is, is there any, and we have a show called Finding Bigfoot. Why do we not have a show called Finding Fairies? And are there out, are people out there looking for tiny, tiny little footprints of these small creatures of these little people? And if not, why not? Well, I can. think there will be now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've started, i started this.
2: I'm, I have a we, funny story for that? you. Well, well, I have, so I re- I I have just, some good just, stuff for you. Go ahead, Jeb. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, so there are actual fairy artifacts that have been found. That's um, what I want to hear about. That, and, what are and they? They do exist. So the most impressive, do you want the most impressive or the least impressive first? Least. Is, there a, is
8: there
5: really a huge difference? <laughs> I was just to say, <laughs> it's this really just very subjective. It seems like yes. a very... That's scary. true, that's true.
2: So, okay, so the one that the one that I think, I personally think is the least impressive is, uh, are the McLeod clan's fairy flag?
5: Oh, yeah. And that's, that's because
2: the picture that I've seen of it is, like, this, it's a black and white picture, which is unfortunate, and that's the one I've seen. But it looks like this, um, like, this old piece of linen that's just been shredded to pieces. I mean, it looks like like those banner flags that you hold up at homecoming and someone's punched through the center of it. And they have uh-huh. just kind of draped it with, like, a drinking horn and, like, this old-looking
5: lamp. There, there was a documentary on the fairy faith that's on YouTube, and they had it in there, and it was in color and video, and it is no more impressive than your black and white picture.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it looks like a cleaning rag that someone has yeah. decided is a thing. Yeah. Uh, is it
0: blurry um, as well, like a picture of Bigfoot?
2: No, it's pretty clear. Yeah, yeah. It's, it looks it's pretty, pretty modern, modern, actually. And the fairy flag apparently was given to the McLeod, to the McLeod clan by Queen Tatiana herself, and supposedly the firstborn sons of the family can unfurl the flag and unfurl said powers. I wasn't able to find what those powers were, but I'm assuming that they're impressive or something. But that one to me, I think, is the least impressive because it's it, it's just somebody's dish rack that they've right. decided is a fairy flag.
1: That's our
4: whole (laughs) show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and WagOn. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast.
0: Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents.
4: Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming.
0: Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution.
4: Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur (laughs) injuries, paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases.
0: A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
8: Are um, ready for the most impressive one, though, Sarah. Well, there's two yeah. of
2: them, I think.
0: Well, my favorite one
2: right now, which Jeb probably might know a little bit about, is the uh, the tiny mummy that was found in the San Pedro's Mountains in Wyoming. Oh, sure. And this one, of course, it has vanished over time, because as all fairy mummies do, they vanish. But this one apparently was around long enough to get um, x-rayed, and we all know how reliable these x-rays can be. And there is a black and white photo of this thing, and if you just look at the little photo, it looks like one of those little... It's got kind of a human-y looking face, and it's got yeah. its legs crossed, and its arms. it looks like a sitting Buddha but it's got like a kind of a person face.
5: I've seen a picture of it, but I don't know a lot about it.
2: Well, here's the thing. When you look at the x-ray, this is where they made their mistake. When you look at the x-ray, you can clearly see, especially if you've ever seen an x-rayed mummified cat from Egypt, it's (laughs) clearly a mummified cat that someone has posed and then mummified, and it probably accounts for the weird face, because I'm assuming if you were to shave all of the fur off of a cat's face, you would probably get very similar facial features off out of it.
8: Well, we're not recommending to listeners that they shave their cat's face. No. I would prefer no. you not do anything
2: quite so cruel to your cat. <laughs> oh, dear,
0: and that's one of the best examples, is it? Well, uh, yeah. well, that one I
2: like just because it's like it takes a minute to kind of process what you're looking at, and honestly, if okay. they hadn't had the x-ray, I probably would not have figured out that that was a cat.
7: I'm going to okay. say an Egyptian mythology find that that's the fast evidence. <laughs> oh,
8: <my>. <laughs> <laughs> and I can like. Somebody, can Mike. somebody mute Blake, please? Why, is that Why? possible?
5: Was was the and other one you're going to mention? Was the other one you're going to mention the, the luck of Eaton Hall, or was it a different one?
2: Oh no, I didn't find that one. No, this is a different one. Um, this is the the golden boat. Um, I'm going to mispronounce this one. The brighter gold boat. And it's part of the um, the brighter golden hoard that was found a while back. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody remembers, I was found by a, a metal detectorist, like all of these Yeah,
5: I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with that one. Right,
2: so there's this little tiny, and it's really cool. It's this little teeny tiny oar boat, uh, and it's I believe it's got, uh, I want to say six oars on each side, so it's a 12 oar boat. It's a teeny tiny little thing. It's 7.25 inches by 3 inches and weighs 3 ounces. It's got benches, row locks, two rows of nine oars, I'm sorry, and a paddle rudder. It also has little tiny tools for grappling, three forks, a yard derm and a spear. And all of these are made out of gold. And they're all within proportion of the boat. So there's all these little teeny tiny gold objects. And this
5: was found in the ground.
2: This is part of the golden horde. So yeah. Part of the horde, yeah. Wherever the horde was found, this was found along with it. And there are pictures and it is really pretty. Now the It is, it's really cool. The mainstream or the lamestream explanation for this boat <laughs> is that it's a Celtic votive to the sea god mac um, Macleer. But any true fairy enthusiast would know that this is actually a magical boat that was used by fae royalty when they were leading their little fairy Viking raids uh, against other fairies, I guess. I don't know.
5: Yeah, But that was that's my... Not, that sounds reasonable.
2: Right. That one was my favorite just because the boat is so freaking cool to look at. Between the boat and wow. the mummy, I like the mummy because that's stateside and there's really not a whole lot of, like, fairy evidence stateside that isn't things like elf shot and that kind of thing.
7: It's, it's, it's my, uh, the monster talk aspect, I have to mention that, that there was recently um, a, a thing going around on Facebook and the internet where, where it showed what looked like a mummified Jaime ha- Masson. I, yeah, I, that,
2: that guy.
5: Yeah, well,
7: he. I don't know. He's involved with so many terrible, terrible hoaxes. I don't, I don't know.
5: <laughs> we well, covered the Roswell slides on yeah. fantasies in our Roswell yeah. episode. And this I, is it, kind of the same made, thing. Well, this is uh, we, we,
7: We've actually covered this concept before. Is what we would call a gaffe. Uh, yeah. Where it's an entirely artificial art. It's artistic. It's beautiful. Yeah, they really um, are. But I don't know uh, why people would find it compelling. But then again, people find those clearly photoshopped Pictures of people, you know, archaeologically uncovering giant skeletons and birds in the the corners. You can tell it's from a hope site, you know.
5: women in archaeology is a show about archaeology by the women of archaeology an alternating panel of women archaeologists discuss the issues in archaeology that impact professionals and the public every day check out women in archaeology for a different perspective on the past today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash wia now let's get back to the show
8: We have in Connecticut. We have a really. We actually have a little people's village. Do you? Oh, that's right. You do. Yes. Which anybody can go to. There are these little miniature little houses. They're all in ruins now. And you know the scuttle. The 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 rumor is that this is a little people's village. Nobody knows exactly who built it, and it's it's strange and it's odd, and there are all kinds of paranormal things that happen there. Mm -hmm. If you look into it even a little bit, you find out that it was part. It was an exhibit at. There's a, a an amusement park nearby and they built this and it was a it, they took a, a little train a miniature train could take people through the little people's village and you could sit there and eat your popcorn and cotton candy and look at the little people's village this part of the amusement park still, the amusement is still open but this part of the amusement park has been kind of abandoned and the, the the little people's village has been left to decay and the trees have all grown up around it and so now People don't remember that this was part of the amusement park, and so there are all these stories about these paranormal little yeah. people's ghosts. <laughs> Ohio has one, too. Ohio has,
5: right? Ohio, I don't know if it's the same, like, backstory, but Ohio also has the sort of lore that in multiple places there is the the creepy and hostile town of little people. They don't say it's fairies. They say it's a town of, like, actual little people. Smurfs. Oh, I, gotcha. I don't want to leave our listeners, like, it's like it's one in eight
0: well, I, I'm just going to add that we have a, a place in Denver as well. It's called Tiny Town, and it's reputedly haunted by tiny ghosts.
7: <laughs> well, I, I'm imagining they always could be used for, like, the, the, a, a tiny version of The Walking Dead.
2: <laughs> so it's not even, like, they're little people. They're, they're little people ghosts?
8: Yes. Yeah, so well, nice. hey, well, in Connecticut, we have the Melonhead Village, mm-hmm. which are... And we're not the various stories. The stories vary, but in one case, they, they're they're little people, but they've escaped from a mental hospital yeah. where they were kept because they have deformed heads and therefore whatever. So they're not paranormal, but they're out there, and there's a lot been so much inbreeding, and you don't want to, you don't want them to find you because they'll kill you and eat you. So that's, and,
7: that's an urban legend. We've got that here. in there's a place
5: out here. There's actually a couple places it's attributed to around Atlanta. Really. Time. Yeah, I knew about is? that. In, I knew about that in Michigan and Ohio, but I didn't know about that in the South. Yeah, so it is
7: absolutely an urban legend here too. So that's well, that's the nature of urban legends, right? So, uh, all right. yeah. That's great. So what I wanted to say though is, Jeb, you, you brought up this idea, this hypothesis that maybe fairies were real. So let's not leave our listeners hanging. Did that turn out to be true? Were they actually an ancient
5: race? No, I mean the, and, and I also, and I do want to tie, yeah. this, I do want to tie this into the fiction a little. I so I mean we now fully are aware that. These buildings we find, they are, they you know, things like burial, ma- burial mounds uh, or chamber tombs. People would go in and out of them, but they were largely for funerary. I mean, my favorite one of these is uh, Newgrange. It's a massive building in Ireland, early Neolithic Ireland. It was 700 years older than the Great Pyramids. When it was built, it was the largest stone structure on Earth. And people, we know they went in and out. In fact, we know they went in and out on the winter solstice because of the way it is aligned. And the fact that the sun is actually made to sort of shade or, or uh, shine into the back of it. But this notion of kind of like there being an ancient race and it being, it was really a lot of it was reflecting colonialism. You know, I mean, McRitchie, when you read his stuff, it's, you'll see like, oh, the, the later people came in and they set up their castles. And there were like friendly natives they kept in the basement and they were the brownies and they were servants. And you're like, oh, God, this is, this is just like colonialism writ mad and so yeah what you i think you've got is people sort of last gasping but these the uh not wanting to get rid of older lore but the the sort of payoff on that there's the there's the author arthur Machen, and he's followed by lovecraft and he's followed by howard robert e howard they all took that idea i mean there are literally a number of stories by arthur Machen then inspire these others that are directly from mac ritchie i mean individual bits from it are directly from uh mac ritchie and so that then forms a lot of ideas in fantasy fiction about like goblins under the earth and like sort of lost hidden races tunneling and and all these sort of weird ideas of people that are hiding amongst us and they're sort of savage uh that that continue on mm-hmm.
8: And uh, here in the Northeast, among the Native people, the little people are semi-subterranean. They are they live underground. Um, and and in fact, the evidence of their existence: you walk through the woods, you find what we would probably presume to be little animal dens or rodent burrows or tree throws, and and Native people will say, "No, those are the homes of the little people because they live underground."
2: Well, it's interesting though because. Well, again, with the the Norse uh, landalfar, they can actually shapeshift. So, like when you look out your window and you think you see a person, and then you look out there and there's really a fox running across the yard. That's that's the little that's the It's just shifted into a fox so it can run away faster. So that's kind of interesting. But Ken, tell us about the um the the stone structures in Connecticut or uh, in the New England area that you've encountered and that have become an issue with uh some of the tribes up there
8: All right well what i think what i think is happening up here is that there is this substrate of the story of the little people um and that they live semi-subterraneanly and but then these folks the mohegan have lots of stories and that, that you could probably trace back to sometime in the early to mid-19th century stories of these little people well, the Europeans come in, they cut down all the forests where all these little people live, they put their farmsteads in there, they build they build houses, they build barns, they build outbuildings, they have cider mills and, and fulling mills, and they make a go of it for a while, and the Indians, of course, are pushed off to the margins, but then those farms become economically non-viable, they're abandoned, and then all of... The houses fall down. The only thing left are the stone foundations, including the outbuildings, little beehive structures that they use for, for root cellars or for ice houses or for other other storage reasons. And but then the forest grows up all around it, and the stories, the, the knowledge of what those things were used for is lost, and it becomes mystified. You walk in the woods, small. and they look small. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, because they they've collapsed, and you, you walk through the woods and you see. I commonly hear this giving people walks through the woods, hikes, and they see a foundation. They see a little stone structure and they say, why is this here? This is the middle of the freaking woods. Why would this be here? Right. And you have to explain to them, well, actually, 150 years ago, there was a bustling community here. It's been abandoned because farming was not economically plausible in this area. And so it's been abandoned. The trees have grown all up and any connection between kind of the modern world and what was going on 200 years ago in Connecticut has been, has been cut. So well, what and that, happens.
5: And, and, and before we ahead. move on, Ken, before we move on, that repeats what had happened after the 16th century. I mean, there are, there are tales by like the pilgrims when they land. is like, wow, it's like Providence. It's like, you know, God right. laid this all out. There's things that almost look like roads. There are things that almost look like gardens. It's like, no, no, no. Before you brought <laughs> diseases, those were roads. Those right. were dark exactly. And this wasn't all forest until ninety percent of the population died in the sixteenth century.
8: And you do real you realize that that it was kind of standard explanation by the Puritans is that they were in fact the equivalent of the new Israelites. The Indians were the Canaanites, and oh, yeah. God God was visiting these plagues upon the Canaanites to clear the land yes. so that the pilgrims wouldn't have to shoot them, but they could just move in, and the land would be cleared, cleared of people. But oh, what happens, sky cake! Yes, but what what happens though? Then is that you've got the the New England Antiquities Research Association, and the Barry Fell crowd. They they rediscover all of the, this all of this evidence of previous usage of these woodlands by European settlers, and they mystify it. They say, "What what is this doing here in the middle of the woods?" And they're the ones who say, you know what, this is evidence of a much older occupation. They are, in fact, usurping that landscape from native peoples and saying, no, we've been on this landscape at least as long as they have. And that's when you start seeing all these equinoctical and solstitial alignments being proposed for people's foundations, for stone walls, for piles of stone that archaeologists and historians believe are merely the, the end product of clearing those, those, those lands for farming, and they become part of a ceremony a year, an ancient European ceremonial landscape. But what's really interesting now is native people, Mohegans, Pequot, especially there, the two, our two recognized tribes here, they are now reclaiming that landscape by saying those stone chambers, those stone walls, those, in fact, were built by us, In some cases, the shaman, our, our shaman made them, or they actually were, the smaller ones especially, were actually built by the little people. So in a sense, you can understand, they're reclaiming that landscape. They're, they're, they're repositioning themselves on that landscape after, in their opinion, the Europeans tried to usurp them from that landscape. So you get all this other this political stuff going on. When here we are archaeologists, we just we would like to dig these sites and to be able to determine from a material perspective, an archaeological perspective, who built them and when. And all you do all you end up as an archaeologist living in this area is so you get everybody pissed off at you because everybody has this this investment in what these things actually mean. And nobody wants them to be farming outbuildings, because that's not romantic or sexy.
5: Well, I that's, think, I think, what happened a hundred years earlier with where this very stuff in archaeology starts. like, well, people didn't like what archaeology... We generally just kind of piss everybody off. It's like yes, our, there our you nature. Go.
2: <laughs> But I think it's interesting how the Native Americans are using that to reclaim the land itself. Um... uh, At least in a spiritual sense. Right, right. I mean, it it, it does allow them to have a claim to it historically, and we've talked about how having that historical claim to something gives a group power. And I'm all for them, like, getting back their power and all that kind of stuff. But I'm also an archaeologist, so I I would like to have those things recorded properly. Oh, Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and and as far as the fringe is concerned, I mean, they're they're not, uh, what is that? But they're right. they're just outbuildings. They're nothing magical. Yeah.
7: Well, but, this reminds me also of what Jeb mentioned in the, his manuscript about the uh, how the spiritualist movement relied heavily on the idea that Native Americans were spirit guides. Like even oh, yeah. Not, yeah. they themselves were being sort of uh, given given almost minor deity roles. You know, um,
5: but as much as they were exoticizing people and doing all that that crap, that like is not good. They were often also like useful political allies, at least to a point. Yeah, to to, mm. to 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 indigenous people being ground down by the sort of growing American state. So it it, it gets complicated.
2: Yeah, exactly. That does you get into that yeah. whole noble savage thing, and, and, and
5: yeah,
7: well, like, well I the, the track of the the, um, the the sort of turn of the century fairy, fan, uh, I don't want to say fantasy, but that kind of is what's going on. The the, the 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 Cottingley fairy
5: story. Um, oh yeah, yeah one. we.
0: I can't but do a show without mentioning
7: them,
5: at least. Oh no! no. <laughs> well, we we've, we've bagged on we've bagged on Conan Doyle repeatedly on our show, much to Sarah's chagrin. I didn't say Jeb has ragged on Conan yeah. Doyle.
2: I yeah. still have a special place in my heart. Um, no, listen, listen. I am I
8: am a Sherlock Holmes nerd, and I love those who <laughs> But but here's the the deal with that, which is really super ironic, is that. Uh, and I think I shared this 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 piece with with Jeb is that you can find. I mean, not only is Sherlock Holmes a rationalist and uses deductive logic and has a true scientific mind, and we we compare that to Conan Doyle and his embrace of spiritualism, but there in in a number of the stories, there is very explicitly. Uh, people suggest to Sherlock Holmes that the explanation for a particular horrible tragedy is paranormal. And in, in three or four of the stories, Sherlock Holmes very explicitly says, I have no, I have no interest in the paranormal. In fact, in the end of one of them, he he basically, he says, um, the world is big enough for us, no ghosts need apply. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. So it's not just this kind of general thing. Very explicitly, Sherlock Holmes says, he effectively, um, uh, conveys Occam's Razor a number of times saying, well, maybe we can consider vampires or maybe we consider ghosts. But you know what? We need to eliminate all of the other more plausible explanations before we, we kind of uh, surrender to a paranormal explanation. Well, I, I think I'm there's a fatal
2: flaw being made or, or a fatal uh, correlation being made here and that that people do this a lot when it comes to writers and their well-known characters. And that is people like to equate those characters with the writer themselves. And that is an error that should not be made. Like, we shouldn't say that Holmes is Doyle, or that Doyle was writing himself as Holmes. Maybe he was. Maybe he was. But we shouldn't make that assumption, because literally, it is very common for authors to write characters that are a hodgepodge of various people or traits that they want to project. And... You know, he purposely I, I made Sherlock non-human. Like he's emotionalist. Yeah. He's hard logic. He has no room right. for the metaphysical.
8: All right. Well, that's, that's not entirely true, Sarah. But we can talk about it another time. No. That's but the fine. point here is, he wrote sixty goddamn stories. Oh in yeah. Which he presents something. Who is? Who says? Who professes something that is antithetical to what Conan Doyle actually believes? Oh yeah. And Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle was subject to a whole lot of shit dumped on him. By scientists who said, oh my God, you can't, you don't really believe fairies,
6: do you? Right. right, right. So
8: I, I find it, I'm not, I'm not casting dispersions. I'm finding it super interesting yeah. that a guy who feels kind of burdened by all of this opprobrium about his beliefs that he creates a character who in fact is somebody who would say to Conan Doyle, you know, man, you're full of shit. You're, you're, you're not being sensible. And I think that's
2: fascinating. Right. I think that was his way of dealing with it.
5: Yeah. Well, maybe. And and, and and the reason we've talked about him earlier, in addition to to Ken being a giant uh, Holmes nerd, and we may talk about that further on Archie Fantasies, Sure. but we brought him up because he largely minted, not entirely, but had a major role in minting the idea of a mummy's curse. Which is amazing. <laughs>
8: yeah. <laughs> he like,
5: was really into it, man. One of his friends who, who died, he said, died in the mummy's curse. That friend was largely the inspiration for the Hound of the Baskervilles, the most supernatural of the home stories.
6: Yes, yeah, absolutely, the, and
5: the, the most archaeological cool. of the home stories. Yeah, I mean, and he wrote the what was it, lot something two lot something. two four nine or something like yeah, that. Yeah, which yeah, is, which
6: was he, big he the creates the, the sort
5: of the first mummy like killer mummy story one, yeah. the very first. Yeah, so no, all and that's and he's a perfect example of how you'd have people like E. Wallace Budge, the keeper who's breaking like every law imaginable, stealing <laughs> shit from Egypt. Like he would describe mummies as bone meal yeah, to like wow. sneak them into the UK and sneak shit out on like, on like postal boats and with the help of, of like military friends, much to the chagrin of colonial officers. He's very scientific and yet. He's also a member, a speaking member of the Ghost Club, and he gets really annoyed when occultists want to come into the into the, Brit- to the Egyptian galleries of the British Museum, except when they're his friends. <laughs> and this is all. And his Book of the Dead, his translation of it, becomes a huge part of the occult scene in the early 20th century uh, culture. And all of this is blended together, and that's where I think that's all important for understanding this fairy stuff. It was a real folk belief. But because of the freak out over modernity and over what Max Weber would call the disenchantment that comes with modernity, uh, the sort of removal of magic by science in the 18th and 19th century, uh, you had lots and lots of academics who were more than happy to sort of take old lore, like W.B. Yeats, the, the famous uh, Irish poet, who was trying to forge sort of a nationalist artistic tradition and was... Taking old bits of folklore and turning them into what we think of as fairy lore today.
2: Well, and Doyle was a big proponent of the Cottingley fairies in that like, I don't think they would have been as popular as they ended up being if he hadn't given them his stamp of approval. Oh, no. Building on right. that whole concept of Doyle is Holmes, Holmes is rational. Yeah. Therefore, if Doyle says that these fairies are real, they must be real. You know, right. and then, and that's where we get this whole fairy thing, even though when you look at the pictures, I mean, I know photography was new back then, but <laughs> the concept of manipulating a photograph was not unknown to the Victorians. So I don't understand why someone, photography. Yeah, why someone didn't look at right. that back then and be like, ah, no, 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 no. And I'm sure some people <laughs> well, did,
6: but. Well, they did.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He and Houdini were not; they did not see eye to eye on a lot of stuff.
5: Did have but any of
8: your
2: friends?
5: I have yeah. not seen that. There was a movie made. I want to say yes. in the nineties. Have yeah, you guys yeah. seen that? I uh, have. I tell, and yeah. I don't know who plays uh, Doyle. Uh, plays I, I,
7: There's two books out on it and a TV show now as well. So what
5: are, what's yeah, the name right. of it again?
6: Think,
8: but yeah, the the movie. I think it was the early nineties. I I actually enjoyed it when I saw it. I haven't I haven't thought about it or watched it in years. What was the name of it? It was. Oh my God! Was it a,
5: fa- a fairy story? I don't remember. I think I think I think it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you mean specifically about the Cuttyhunk fairies? Right? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Fairy tale, a true story. There you go. Okay. With uh, with let's see, um, Peter O'Toole plays Conan Doyle. That's what I, that's what I thought. Okay. And, and Harvey Keitel plays Harry plays Houdini. Houdini. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to. I see remember it being it's inter- entertaining. You found a I
7: hole th- in my collection.
5: <laughs> it's not saying. a Disney movie, but it like it's it's in that sort of style. It's a live action thing, 1997 by Icon by Paramount. Uh, cool. It's not Disney, but it, it, you could have fooled me from like just seeing the uh, the ads for it. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: so but this is a, a really fascinating story throughout history. Is the whole well, yeah. Doyle's embracing of the fairies. Yes,
8: <laughs> we we've got to do a show about Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and archaeology. And that's, I absolutely yeah, agree. Yeah, we, yeah. we we call it "So You Monster Talk Guys." Oh, no, no, no. that's fine. I'll, I'll tune
7: in happily. I enjoy your show. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I, we're running long, but I, I just want to mention that as far as uh, fairies go, there's one thing that I've learned since I started. It just fascinated me, which is that uh, one of the scary ideas behind fairies is the idea of changelings. And I always oh, yeah. mm. interesting story. You know, ha ha. You know, imagine, you know, your children are being changed out. But then, as an adult, I read uh, Martin Luther uh, and his passage on describing having actually met a changeling. And uh, as the parent of a kid with autism, I have to say what he's describing sure sounds like.
2: I was going to say, Blake, I remember reading something that you wrote where you were discussing the disturbing imagery of of the, the way changelings are described, comparing that to. Oh, it's it's it's. Can you go
7: into that? Because it's very uh, powerful and it's very important. It, here's for sure. So the thing is, so there's been this, it is really just a, uh, a hot topic among uh, skeptical, act, skeptical activists, which is that um, recently uh, there's this guy named Andrew Wakefield faked some data and, and basically started a giant movement saying that, uh, that vaccines cause autism. Right. right. And he published an article. Right, yeah. and, and, which has since
0: been retracted. Since exactly. been
7: retracted, but the, but once the ideas out there, it won't go yeah, away.
0: Exactly. See,
7: when they when they're a parent of a, a child with autism, what typically happens is you get a basically normal development until they get around two or three, and then things start to change. And right. it can change to various degrees because they call it a spectrum disorder. It, it, it's, you get all kinds of different variations, but the behaviors change significantly. And a child that seemed like it was developing quite normally suddenly becomes a different person than right and and so what in the changeling lore you basically have young children who seem fine and normal and then suddenly change and when they grow up they don't behave like normal people they maybe they eat a lot or they don't talk or they're you know they're yeah. sullen. the kind of the same behaviors you might see in an autistic child and it I think based on what I've read that it's entirely possible that the changeling lore and the whole legends of changeling is, is more than just a kind of Van Winkle type is, you know, it's kind of made up. Oh story. yeah. It's an explanation of something that just parents didn't understand at the time. Well, yeah.
2: and it's I mean, also it's- been suggested that changeling lore is a way of explaining postpartum depression because a lot of times you would have women oh, yeah, who do not bond with their children. And of course it's just this expectation that, you know, as soon as you have a baby that you're just going to be like, oh, it's the most magical thing ever. And for some people it is. Karen, don't take it the wrong way.
0: Um, no, I've got a 16 month old and I, I yeah, I, I can appreciate that. Right. I
2: mean, most people, most of the time there's a bond because that's what keeps us from eating our young. And, you know, but for some people that just never occurs. And instead of saying, you know, because mental disorders weren't really well known back then they would say, well, the mother's not bonding because she instinctively knows that's not really her baby and it's been swapped yeah. out, and so she can't mm-hmm. bond with it because it's an
5: alien baby. Yeah. The, the, for, our, for our listeners, the, the, the basic concept here is that fairies would steal human children. And they would replace them with a very old fairy that disguises itself under a glamour as the as, as the human child, but of course it's sickly and it has all these problems. Ugh. And so one way to like fix this would be to threaten the child or beat it or hold it over a fire or do all these things so that the fairies would eventually go, okay, fine, well we'll switch them back. Yeah, these your best
7: case were- scenario. Your best case scenario is you do something like brew beer in an eggshell right. and then. The the fairy sees this and says, "I've never seen anything like that before."
5: And oh, oh I've given myself away. <laughs> yeah. But it was often it was often worse. And so, yeah, postpartum yeah. depression. I've heard just depression because also adults could be considered. There was the idea that yeah. you would leave sort of like a a blank behind, right. like like an equivalent. Mm-hmm. So basically, almost anything that we might go, oh, something happened to this person, or they're strange and unexpected. They might be a changeling, right. strokes, mm-hmm.
7: dementia, all these things. Yeah. But uh, the interesting thing to me is the same idea is being repurposed uh, as star children uh, yep. in modern right. times. Right, exactly. It's not a fairy, but it's an alien. You know, I right. Right. indigo children. <laughs> yeah. Hey, no. hey, hey!
2: I was an indigo child. Okay, <laughs> I <just Really>? wrote... <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh yeah! It was weird. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, but
5: it the, just. But I think that's. I mean, the the. I mean, I'm not the one who invented the, the equation of of fairies and aliens. I mean, that goes at least as far back as as Jacques Vallée. That's a very in logical one, though. Of course, he was like, "Well, that means that there's something real behind all this," and I'm like, no, there's not." <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, the the fact that there's a sort of extraterrestrial or ultra terrestrial version of every single bit of what we have is fairy lore. Indigo children for, for changelings, abductees for your, you know, they were away with the fairies, uh, Roswell debris for the strange objects. My favorite uh, fairy uh, artifact is the Luck of Eden Hall. I went and saw it in the Victorian Albert Museum last year. Yeah, what is that? It's, it's this beautiful glass that the Musgrave family... And they sort of started a trend of people doing this. There would have been ones before, but that they said they had stolen from the fairies so they could heal a member of the family. And there are different versions of this and there was this idea that as long as the as long as the glass didn't break the, the Musgrave family would, would continue to do really well. And they did eventually give it to the, uh, what becomes the Victorian Albert Museum. And then the, the Musgrave mansion eventually sort of falls into economic disrepair. It doesn't uh-huh. literally do that. So
2: you see, um, they shouldn't have given it away.
5: Now, there's two cool things here. One, uh, I ran into this to some degree because, uh, one, Howard Phillips Lovecraft considered the Musgraves to be part of his family. And this was his one sort of big family story he would tell people in letters. And two, it kind of proves our point, because what it really is, is an 8th century beautiful Syrian glass okay. that probably came back from the Crusades. But did it's it serious? have a gin in it? No, not a gin, but it's got beautiful colored lights, to, <laughs> or, 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 or not lights, but, uh, oh, not a gin. Oh, well, right. it might have. That I don't know. <laughs> but it's exotic, and you don't know who made it, and it certainly wasn't made here. Oh, fairies must have done yeah. it. Yeah.
8: And to bring this back to Arthur Conan Doyle, there actually is a Sherlock Holmes story called The Musgrave Ritual. Yep. Ah,
5: which has yeah. nothing,
8: which has nothing to do with this, but it's the Musgrave family and there's this bizarre ritual and they've got some important stuff hidden away. Yep. There's like a um, treasure or
5: something. Yeah,
8: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, the, it's like the, the crown of, some, of an ancient British king. Um,
5: but well, it's not it, that it, far it, off. Yeah, it's yeah. not really that far off. And that, of course, to to mention one more author who's very much influenced by all this stuff, um, including fairy lore, M. R. James, uh, yeah. and and Tolkien. Uh, he's pulling this left and right. I mean, his barrow whites are are you know this, their weapons come from from ancient barrows. Uh, so this is this is a big part, and we have just sort of forgotten it, and we've turned it into kind of fantasy fiction. But then we've taken all the parts and turned it into again like our aliens and our spirits and our extraterrestrials.
8: Yeah, it's, it's really really cool how all these disparate pieces are all all can be fit together into one giant hole. Um, or women. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I'm just blank. I'm just, I'm just disappointed in you because when, when Sarah said she was um, an indigo child, I'm surprised you didn't ask her. Oh, I didn't know you were one of the indigo girls. Wah, wah, do you, do you know sexy. how many people would even know what that's a reference to at this point?
2: Hey, I like the indigo girls specifically because they had the word indigo in them. No, no, no. my, my family was convinced <laughs> I was an indigo child for like a brief half hot minute. Well, there you go, so, there And then it go. turned out I was just dyslexic. Bye-bye.
0: We should uh, probably try and wrap things up here, but um, uh, as you guys know, we always like to ask our guests at the end of the show what their favorite monster is, but Blake says to me that uh, Ken is exempt from this, so we want hear from (laughs) Sarah and (laughs)
2: Jed.
5: Sarah?
2: Oh, my favorite monster. I really like werewolves. I don't know why, but I just love the concept of... it just depends on what culture you're looking at or what group they are. They're almost always evil, but some, especially modern werewolves, you know, they're like a new thing and like, they're like they've replaced the vampire with being the ultimate sex symbol. And so it's, I know they really are like, you guys probably don't read smut, but I do. And um, the werewolf is like the new alpha male, like literally and figuratively. And so I, I, I really like the werewolf just because of its evolution
7: through Prehistory Ooh. to history to modern era. I, I read Hamilton, so yeah,
5: I guess I do. What
0: <laughs> <laughs> sexy werewolves?
5: Sexy werewolves? Yeah, nice choice. Oh. Yeah, M- mine would be. I think for almost my entire life, and maybe still today, but definitely one of the sort of the, probably the gateway that got me into all this madness from a very young age was the Loch Ness monster. And I actually went to Loch Ness last year. Oh yeah, yeah. and part of it was really cool part of it was uh, it's clear that this is a thing that a lot of people I think don't really believe in anymore right. um, which was sort of disappointing. and also the fact that I basically got to see block Ness monster four times last year in the sense and' like now we're gonna cut it and we'll use that to ruin your jet no um, <laughs> the the wave action the sort of the like the sort of unusual wave action you get there, I didn't expect to see it. I saw it several times. I actually got mm-hmm. video of it. It's actually kind of fascinating. Like huh. I have pictures that you could easily say, "Oh, that's a, you could you could if you grained it up a little and made it black and white, that would be a Loch Ness monster picture." So right. uh, that's probably my my kind of long standing one. But if you kind of glom all these things like these fairies and these aliens and deep all kind of together, maybe this sort of people who aren't people, these sort of extra people or, or ultra-terrestrials, I'm not certain. So let's just say Nessie.
2: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> S-
0: S- several S- answers in one. okay yeah. so so here's it so Karen, what's your favorite monster? Oh, uh, we've answered this a, a couple of times before, but Jeff the talking mongoose is a favorite' been uh, yes. talking about the the UK as well from uh, <laughs> yeah that that that's my favorite I think. And Blake, which ones are <laughs> you still?
7: I, I hop around a lot, but uh, I, I tend to go back to werewolves a lot. That's is awesome, and then of course I, I bring up the the creature from the movie The Thing a lot. That's always oh yeah, because it's yeah. a shape changer, uh, and it, it's really not even clear when it takes over. If you even
5: know you've been taken over, it's very interesting. Speaking so. of hopping around a lot, I may be doing a thing in a few weeks involving the Loveland Frog. Ah, okay. Because it's not too far away from me. I don't know. I'm not promising anything. But You're I. You tripping. Uh, I don't know about that. I may be doing some <laughs> actual legit work. We'll see. <laughs>
6: <Okay>.
5: Legit work. <study>. Legit <laughs> The is, it, is your book like? Is it going to be like? Is it a done deal? Like, do you have a date? Or, like... Um, by the time this is out, it should. I have. I recently edited a volume with the University of Alabama Press, Lost City, Found Pyramid with David Anderson, who we've had on Archie Fantasies recently, and that is out. You can get that on Amazon and all the various places. You can get those sorts of things. I have another one that's tentatively entitled Spooky Archaeology that I've talked about a little, and that is wending its way through. If everything goes according to plan, and if it doesn't, we'll just cut this part later. I would guess about a year from now, or maybe a little longer, that it'll be actually like in print. Ken,
7: nice. what's your book dropping?
5: It is done though. Kids is early December,
7: right?
8: Yeah, yeah. The, my fifty sites book is early December. I've, Jeb has shared his the spooky archaeology manuscript with a, a bunch of people, including me, and it's absolutely superb. It's an excellent book. It is a good uh, they, book. They've got uh, the, the press has to has to pick it up. And I, hi- if you're interested in, in the really stretch, the, the, the deep mess, story behind a lot of this stuff, Jim's book is going to be the is going to be the reference Funny guide. It's going close. to be the book. To and, well, and, I, and
5: that's coming I, from I the guy who wrote the, the reference guide. So... Well, like I said, it's still kind of Wending we its way through, but hopefully It will be done in about a year And then they can Definitely just call me completely mad <laughs> Awesome, well that's <laughs> outstanding but, uh, This was such a
4: good thing I, I really enjoyed doing this I, I, Of course, it would be great if we've been around a table with beer But,
5: you know, this is awesome yeah. Well, this some of fun. us are around a <laughs> table And some of us have, well, cider But, anyway <laughs> Well, thank you guys for inviting yeah. us on This Absolutely. has
2: been a lot of yeah. great, great fun yes, this thank was Great awesome. to have
5: you guys on
3: this. thanks for listening we hope you've enjoyed what you've heard subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts remember to rate and like us wherever you listen be sure to comment on this episode and share us with your friends you can contact us with your questions comments or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com or leave a comment on the show page. Show notes and downloads can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can also follow the blog at archiefantasies.com and follow us on Twitter at archiefantasies. Music was provided by ArcheoSoup Productions. This show is part of the Archeology span Podcast Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. Thanks again for listening!
0: don't do dinosaurs. See? Are you happy? Do you get it now? Do you get it? Honestly. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.
4: Monster dog. Thank you. You've been listening to our special Monster Talk archaeological fantasies crossover podcast. Today you heard Blake Smith and Karen Stolzno of Monster Talk talking about fairies and archaeology with Sarah, Ken Fader, and Jeb Card. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed today are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a happy Halloween.